Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a special programmer's preview of our King Theodore retrospective, a long overdue series dedicated to the fascinating and prolific filmmaker whose career bridged the silent and sound eras of Hollywood. Featuring live musical accompaniment at select screenings, rare 35mm print screenings, and much more. Listen to FLC programmers Dan Sullivan and Thomas Beard as they discuss the trajectory of one of the Hollywood studio system's endearingly great auteurs, their recommended films, and more. Our King Vito retrospective kicks off Friday and plays through August 14th. Explore the lineup and get tickets and all-access passes at filmlink.org slash Vidor. Hello, and welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Uh, I'm Dan Sullivan. I'm a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center, and I'm joined by... Thomas Beard, a programmer at large here at Film at Lincoln Center. And we're joining you today to uh, talk a bit about a retrospective uh, that we have coming up at FLC, which is uh, our, our much anticipated, at least by us, uh, hopefully by you all as well, uh, King Vidor uh, retrospective, which is running uh, August 5th to 14th. And we just wanted to talk a bit about the retrospective and about Vidor as a, as a figure uh, within uh, history of cinema and to perhaps give you a little bit of uh, behind the scenes intel on how this this retrospective uh, came about. And then finally, we'll uh, highlight a few uh, personal personal favorites or just films that we think uh, you should take advantage of the opportunity to see uh, during this retrospective because uh, King Vidor retrospectives have been few and far between and who knows when another one will uh, come around this way, but uh, but we think that this particular uh, configuration of Vidor's films uh, gives a pretty good overview of uh, his very singular, uh, mind-bogglingly varied and, and politically uh, very interesting uh, career. So yeah, I, I guess we could just begin by uh, saying that Vidor had uh, an incredibly long career, I believe uh, he enters the film industry in 1915, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he is an early stalwart of the, uh, or he's a stalwart of the uh, the silent era uh, and made a number of, uh, uh, made many uh, silent films, uh, but he also, um, I think during the silent era, he's an important figure for kind of the, the history of, uh, of film production itself. Uh, it's sort of apart from the art of it, uh, which is to say that uh, he briefly had a uh, what was what was supposed to be sort of the Northern Californian uh, answer to Hollywood at the at this stage in the development of the film industry. It wasn't exactly a given that Hollywood would be kind of the locus and the, the factory of, of uh, the vast majority of, of American uh, filmmaking, of course. And uh, he briefly uh, presided over uh, Vidor Village, uh, sort of uh, an attempt at, um, at creating another kind of power center of, of American cinema uh, on the Northern uh, side of California. But however, you know, that 
didn't pan out, as we all sort of know. Uh, but Vidor uh, went on to uh, to make a number of uh, the silent eras. Uh, most striking films, uh, working uh, in comedy, in drama, uh, even uh, war pictures, war pictures, and um, and maybe we'll stay we'll stay on the silent era. Uh, yeah, for a moment. Yeah, I mean it's 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 true. The story of Vidor's career is, in some ways, also the story of Hollywood, or at least the classical Hollywood era. He's, you know, he's born in the 1890s, <laughs> like cinema itself. And, and our series begins with what I think you could call his breakthrough film, The Big Parade. And it's a, a war film, uh, specifically a war film about World War I, you know, made not many years after the combat concluded. And it provides a kind of template, I think, for a lot of war movies that would follow. Uh, and it was really unique in that it, presented uh, war from a GI's point of view, right? So not from the perspective of an officer, but really from what it was like on the ground. Uh, and it follows uh, three men, very uh, you know, unlikely friends, uh, a sort of hard-nosed uh, barkeep from the Bowery, a lanky steel worker, and uh, the scion of uh, some titan of industry. And the battle sequences are, are really astonishing. I mean, this is like a hundred year old movie and yet uh, they still, to my mind, are just as powerful uh, today as then. Uh, and I think that this is uh, in part because of Vidor's technical prowess, right? So uh, there's this really extraordinary march uh, through the woods into enemy territory uh, which Vidor famously uh, timed uh, to a metronome and it's cutting. And so there's this incredible uh, rhythm uh, to procession of these men as they go, you know, kind of quietly through this forest where people are then sniping at them. And uh, yeah, the the tension is, is, is something that I think also a lot of other uh, filmmakers felt, uh, you know, from Kurosawa to Spielberg, right? Um, and in, in later films, I think you can really see the, the influence of the big parade and, and these kind of sequences uh, specifically. But, um, but he also you know, made many other great films during this, um, this period. I think The Crowd is definitely uh, another uh, really vital one. And also interesting that it's, it's, it's I think, you know, widely regarded as one of the great silent films, and yet it's kind of impossible for an everyday moviegoer to see. You know, there, there are very few repertory screenings. Uh, it's not streaming anywhere. There isn't like a, a, a nice Blu-ray disc of it anywhere. And this is, you know, this is not an obscure film. This was, you know, a big notable production of its time, a successful piece of commercial filmmaking. And yet, it's kind of slipped through the cracks. And I think that one thing that this series shows is that uh, we don't live uh, in maybe an age of kind of abundance in terms of <laughs> film viewing options that uh, it might seem that we do, you know? And I think that the fact that it's so hard to see a movie like The Crowd, which is a kind of brutal indictment of the American dream and of someone who 
imagines a really, you know, uh, extraordinary life for himself and it not really panning out <laughs> the way that he thought it would. But yeah, so the, but we're, we're showing, you know, uh, a number of Fallon films, not just The Big Parade uh, and The Crowd, uh, also uh, some really incredible comedies uh, yeah. with Marion Davies. Yeah, Those I was- a, definite, definite highlights. Yeah, I was about to, I was about to um, uh, talk about this quickly. Um, uh, definitely, uh, if you can, I uh, show people in the Patsy are, are both uh, very much uh, worth checking out uh, within the retrospective. The Patsy is kind of a, it's a comedy about sort of in which uh, Marion Davies plays the it's kind of awkward uh, younger woman who uh, who falls in love uh, with the boyfriend of her older sister. Uh, and she sets about kind of hatching schemes in order to attract his attention and uh, and, you know, hilarity ensues and so on. Uh, but it. Uh, to me, one of the most significant things about the Patsy is that um, it speaks, uh, I think, very directly about cinema uh, at the time and sort of the role of uh, uh, pop culture on just the consciousness of you know any old any old person. Uh, in this case, um, Marion Davies's character does uh, these kinds of these impressions of of some of the leading. Uh, uh, stars of the silent era like Pola Negri, Lillian Gish, and Mae Murray. And it's just notable as a, uh, I think, a relatively early example of kind of uh, uh, meta, it's a sort of an early example of meta cinema in, in some way. And I think that that becomes more explicit in, in show people, uh, which as its title suggests is, uh, is about uh, Hollywood and uh, trying to make it in show business, or at least show business as it existed in uh, 1928. Um, so and that's, yeah. A, 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 yeah, and I think that that's, you know, thinking about show people also gives us just a taste of the range that Fedor had. I mean, even in this relatively brief window, right, just a few years from, say, the big parade to show people, um, he's making a very different kind of movie, you know, a war epic one year and then uh, as you say a kind of this kind of meta cinematic uh satire of hollywood and the, the manufacture of uh celebrity and, and the image of celebrity uh and it works just as well you know so he's he's equally adept in this very different this very different form with show people and it also uh i think endures like the the big parade you know show people is still just as sharp, just as funny, uh, even though the world it depicts is uh, a century old. You know, and in the case of, you know, celebrity being uh, manufactured, uh, I think it's, it's strangely still very resonant today, you know, even though the landscape of stardom is uh, so different or the firmament or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and this, this, um... This tendency within Vidor's uh, work to kind of, uh, uh, rather, just the the kind of the sense in which he worked in in like a huge, an enormous uh, like a variety of of uh, genres and forms uh, uh, would that would remain consistent uh, throughout his career. He he almost um, almost stubbornly uh, 
refused to be the same same kind of director for very long and his his work um sort of sprawls out and you can find uh just about every type of hollywood film uh uh within his uh body of work and that really begins with his first sound film one of the one of the early uh sound films hallelujah in 1929 and so hallelujah of course uh notable for it's uh being an early sound film uh Vidor's first sound film and but it also has an all-black uh cast of course uh uh quite rare um for 1929 and it almost has uh, an air of experimentalism uh, about it, I think. And and that this is a tendency of Vidor's work, which I think is very interesting to keep an eye on across the career. And it becomes much more, even more explicit at the very end of his career. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but I think Hallelujah uh, finds Vidor sort of trying to figure out how uh, the new the new situation of sound cinema uh, is going to work for him, uh, for what he wants to do with the camera, uh, for what he wants to do with actors and so on. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that with Hallelujah, he's able to also maintain a freedom by the way that he recorded the sound, right? By having a lot of the, sound recorded after the fact and not uh, on location allowed for him to uh, maintain this very expressive camera work, you know, right, that's untethered to uh, the recording of the sound on scene. Uh, and, you know, he's also playing with off-screen voices and, uh, yeah, as you say, really kind of seeing what uh, sound can do. And I think that this tendency, this this tinkering, you know, uh, really does uh, continue on uh, throughout his career. I mean, even, you know, with say uh, later Technicolor productions, you know, he's also trying to see what this uh, material he's working with can do. And he proves himself to be an extremely uh, talented colorist, uh, especially if you look at a movie like American Romance, right? Um, his background as a painter, uh, really comes through and he's trying to test the possibilities in the case of that particular film of uh, what sort of psychological effects can be elicited by a palette as it changes. Um, and it really is a movie where the colors uh, take on uh, this very different cast slowly as uh, the film progresses. Yeah, and I guess now that we, we've moved into the, you know, the sound uh, uh, period of Vidor's career, and uh, it, it, it's very sprawling. Uh, he's a hyper-prolific uh, uh, director, and uh, our retrospective um, includes uh, 22 of his films, but suffice it to say, uh, there are many, many more uh, than that. Um, but... Uh, but maybe uh, you know, taking the rest of uh, this this portion of his career, we can we'll uh, maybe highlight a few uh, a few titles that we think um, uh, you should not miss. Um, I quickly uh, wanted to uh, highlight um, the Citadel uh, from nineteen thirty eight, um, which uh, is a 
quite an interesting film uh, for a number of reasons, but, um, but politically, of course, uh, but also in, in light of Vidor's uh, biography. Um, uh, the film concerns uh, a doctor, a young, this young Scottish doctor uh, who has dreams of, of uh, providing, uh, you know, Good uh, accessible uh, healthcare to the to the working class, and so he goes to this uh, Welsh uh, mining village uh, where a number of the the miners have tuberculosis, and he goes there to treat their tuberculosis. Um, one thing leads to another, and he ends up uh, uh, he ends up uh, heading back uh, to the city uh, to London. Um, uh, and he kind of uh, learns the ropes of running a medical practice. And uh, as it turns out, uh, uh, having a successful, as he learns, uh, having a successful medical practice uh, kind of uh, hinges on um, mostly treating kind of wealthy hypochondriacs and doing uh, the complete opposite of kind of what he'd idealistically uh, set out to uh, do. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, rather obviously the, the, the film is kind of talking about kind of the abdication of the, you know, uh, the sort of duties or responsibilities of someone like a doctor, uh, when tempted by kind of the, um, the prizes of, 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 uh, capitalist enterprise, um, uh, and, you know, the, the question of politics is a, pretty interesting one throughout Vidor's work because it's kind of, um, uh, it's laden with contradictions. Um, uh, uh, but oh yeah, way- I mean, I think it's, it's yeah, there's no, um, I was, well, I was going to say my, one of my person my personal favorites uh, in this series is Our Daily Bread, uh, which is a very unlikely movie in that it's a drama about a collective farm, <laughs> you, know, you know, that uh, was released by, Hollywood and basically it concerns this down on their luck couple young couple during the depression that finds themselves uh, the stewards of a farm that's about to be repossessed by the bank and even though they have no experience behind a plow (laughs) it just seemed like this was the the best option they had going for them was to uh, take up on this derelict farm Uh, and uh, one of them has the bright idea of uh, allowing other uh, trade people, you know, with uh, who, who knew trades to come and live and work on the farm. And soon they have uh, a whole uh, cooperative that just kind of springs up. And the film concerns the uh, the kind of challenges that that situation uh, presents, but also. The beauty of it um you know there's some famous weepies in this series like stella dallas or uh the champ but i mean i was when i was re-watching our daily bread for this i was just straight up crying <laughs> at certain points because it's just it's such an incredibly moving image of solidarity and people uh supporting one another and here again also is i think uh, a moment in which the the real part of the, the, the power of the film resides in uh, uh, Vidor's uh, formal abilities. Uh, the, there's a, a, a famous sequence uh, towards the end when they're constructing an irrigation canal, which does not sound 
especially thrilling, but uh, in Vidor's hands, it becomes uh, this remarkable drama, you know, of, you know, will the irrigation canal work and how will they construct it in time? And uh, part of, you know, what uh, makes it so remarkable is uh, the intricacy of the montage. You know, it's like a, a Vertov film or something, but um, it's actually coming out of Hollywood. Um, so just on a purely visual level, it's, uh, it's in, you know, it's incredibly ambitious. Or, and then that sequence in particular. Yeah, and, and um, just sort of getting back for a moment to, to what you're saying about the depiction of, of solidarity uh, in our daily bread, you know, I think a lot of people look toward, look to the end of Vidor's career and see that he uh, adapted Ayn Rand's uh, The Fountainhead and perhaps uh, draw some assumptions about, um, about, about his politics. Um, and, and of course, I, you know, I think Vidor was, you know, the fountain it's not like a subversive adaptation of the fountainhead per se but rather um you know i think vidor probably uh was uh, uh pretty enthusiastic about the material and the ideas contained therein but i think it's 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 more complicated than that because of there being um things like uh, the depictions of like uh, class and, you know, class struggle in, in our daily bread and, and in, uh, in the crowd. Um, it also, uh, it also seems relevant uh, to mention here. Uh, and, and I should have mentioned this when I was talking about the Citadel earlier, but Vidor is also a Christian scientist, um, which I think um Kind of introduces this well first of all it makes it interesting uh that he would um he would make this film sort of about the the medical industrial complex uh uh in the citadel um but i think it also uh to some degree kind of informs uh the way he treats um kind of the motif of nature and the natural um uh, across his work um but but more sort of on the side of, uh, of, of, you know, uh, critiquing, uh, or a political critique rather, I wanted to look at uh, a film that I think people, um, absolutely, uh, cannot, if, there, if you have to see just one film in the King Vidor retrospective, well, this, this would be my pick, uh, personally, which is H.M. Pullum Esquire, uh, from 1941, um, a criminally, uh, kind of underrecognized uh, film uh, in my estimation. Um, it's a flashback. It's a flashback film in which um, this kind of uh, successful patrician, like uh, blue-blooded business guy uh, from Boston, it, um, is just thinking about um, thinking about. Uh, his life uh, to date, uh, and this is all sort of occasioned by his becoming involved in the planning of his 25-year college uh, reunion, and uh, this film is kind of just a, uh, this man who should be like an, sort of an exemplar of the, uh, of the American dream, of what it means to achieve success in America, and it's just him uh, kind of reflecting on his life, uh, and uh, he's filled with regret and disappointment for uh, the way, uh, the way he's gone about it or this, you know, the sort of the sacrifices 
uh, that he's had to make in order to achieve this thing. And now, now he has the thing and he's had the thing for a long time and he doesn't know how much he wants to have the thing. Uh, so, you know, it's it sort of the flashback kind of, uh, uh, begins with his, uh, thinking about his, uh, an early job out of college that he got, uh, through, um, through an old friend from Harvard who's played by, uh, Van Heflin. I shouldn't note that the, uh, the titular, uh, H.M. Pullum, uh, Esquire is played by Robert Young. Um, and this guy's, but anyway, so this guy is thinking about this job he had at this ad agency and, uh, and the sort of near, you know, near romance he has with a, with a colleague, uh, who's played by Hedy Lamar, who's sort of a, she's more progressive, more sort of, more of a modern woman, uh, uh, and he is a modern man, let's say. And, um, and the near miss there is sort of something that he's very hung up on. It's like his, uh, his rosebud, uh, and then I, that's not just a, a facile analogy I'm drawing between um, this film and Citizen Kane. I think there, you know, there's, there, there are a lot of um, affinities there uh, that uh, you should all, uh, you should all explore. Know. Thomas, do you have anything on each of them? Oh, no, I, I think, no, I mean, I think that it, but it, 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 it's, uh, it just goes to show you that uh, it's not, that Vidor is just not an easy filmmaker to pin to the cork, either in terms of the sorts of genres that he's working in, uh, as we mentioned earlier, um, but really also politically, because I think that it's, um, you know, it's uh, it's not that it's uh, all over the place, but there, but there are strange contradictions, you know, kind of contradictory uh, political impulses animating them. Uh, I mean, I guess Vidor was nominally uh, conservative, but uh, yeah, it, it, it can't be, uh, the kind of politics of the film can't be, uh, you know, uh, explained away easily, nor do they, nor do they necessarily, you know, kind of sit so easily in a, you know, in, in a good way, I think. Um, I think that uh, that's part of what keeps them interesting. And I think also a movie like The Fountainhead is probably a great example of something where one can maybe, you know, find its politics odious, but then find it visually and otherwise uh, just a, a total delight, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, it's something that, uh, uh, but it's... Almost, yeah, almost avant-garde in the level of abstraction that some of, like, the, the sets and so, uh, some of what's going on formally in the film uh, achieves its own, you know, it's... it's um, I can't imagine Ayn Rand was a fan of this adaptation of her. Of yeah, her and, it, and, it, and it's erotic imagination is uh, robust, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, but uh, but in terms of the uh, but yeah, in terms of these political contradictions and the bearing uh, some some very interesting uh, aesthetic fruit. Uh, uh, um, Duel in the Sun, I think, is also uh, an important film. To, you know, it's it's one of Vidor's best known films. Um, uh, it's uh, one of the great, uh, you know, one of the great uh, color uh, westerns. Um, uh, and you know, but it but the the 
narrative of the film hinges on this uh, this young woman uh, played by uh, Jennifer Jones, who's uh, who's mixed race, and uh, she is sent to live with her uh, her white relatives. Um, she's sent to live with a with a distant cousin. Um, this is uh, because her father has uh, has murdered her mother. Um, horrifyingly and um and when she goes off to live with her with with these uh white distant relatives um she sort of encounters uh these two types uh, embodied by uh by Gregory Peck and Joseph Cotton respectively um one one being the you know uh uh, so the Gregory Peck characters may be more analogous to something like the the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, character in uh, Power of the Dog, sort of this uh, scoundrelly uh, uh, kind of gruff, sort of macho, like Western guy who's of course uh, incredibly racist, and um, and then Joseph Cotton, uh, this sort of uh, kinder, gentler, but uh, uh, no real indications that he's like that much more progressive uh, uh, than than his brother, uh, uh, and so uh, you know the, uh, the drama sort of unfolds between uh, between these three characters uh, in a way that's uh, uh, you know I think uh, quite reminiscent of uh, of Greek tragedy and it's kind of um, it's kind of grandi the grandiosity of I think what it um, what it wants, what it, what it's doing, sort of in uh, in in its depiction of like the tribulations between these three, but it's also um, it's also a film that I think uh, is just a critique of 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 what was of Vidor's sort of uh, present day you know racism and kind of present day uh, America, uh, Vidor's America, America of nineteen forty six, and. Um, it's also, you know, I think uh, visually, uh, you know, one of the great, one of the great all-time westerns. And uh, to that end, I would, you know, I would highlight the fact that it's it's featured very prominently in uh, in uh, Jean Luc Godard's uh, Histoire uh, du Cinema, um, where and in fact, in a lot of uh, Godard's essay work where he continually uh, returns to the image of this kind of final confrontation uh, involving uh, Jennifer Jones and Gregory Peck's characters um, that I think kind of uh, lays bare that kind of, that, that sort of classic, almost like Greek tragic uh, dimension of the film. Well, and speaking of Duel of the Sun, uh, uh, we're showing that on 35 millimeter, uh, a print that is being loaned to us um, by the Museum of Modern Art from their collection. Uh, and there are actually quite a number of uh, prints in this series. Uh, and I think that's part of the story of the show. Um, uh, it's, you know, yeah, as you said, you know, a majority of uh, prints in their uh, original format, 35 millimeter. And uh, it doesn't go without saying that any kind of uh, classical Hollywood retrospective uh, in 2022 would um, be highlighting, you know, uh, this many uh, things on film. Uh, uh, a regular moviegoer might just assume that uh, the prints of these uh, famous films are readily available for exhibition, but that would not be the case. Oh, no. <laughs> it actually re requires a, a bit of a bit of sleuthing, as 
Dan and I can attest. Yeah, um, maybe we should stop here to note that uh, it, we've been working on this uh, retrospective for, for several years now. Um, it was actually supposed to, uh, it was supposed to happen uh, in 2020, but uh, we all know, you know, I don't have to get into it. We all know what happened. Uh, but, um, but I, you know, we should note that uh, an important sort of predecessor to our retrospective took place at the Berlinale uh, in 2020, where Vidor was the subject of their, of their annual um, uh, retrospective. And uh, yeah, we, we hope that uh, with that retrospective and with this one, that uh, more people will become uh, curious about about the body of work and perhaps uh, we can get the ball uh, rolling to having more of Vidor's work kind of preserved and 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 made more easily available so that people don't have to uh, work as hard for as many years as we did in order to uh, to carry this off um, but uh, maybe uh, maybe we should uh, kind of wrap it up by talking about uh, the program that wraps up the retrospective, which is, um, you know, we've been talking about how different uh, or, you know, how sort of heterogeneous this whole grouping of, of films is and, and maybe uh, no subgrouping of work within the retrospective makes that case better than the uh, closing night uh, program of Vidor's uh, late documentaries or you know, sort of educational uh, films. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, here we see uh, Truth and Illusion, uh, an introduction to metaphysics, which, uh, yeah, as you say, is a kind of, you know, independently uh, produced short subject uh, on, uh, you know, kind of uh, matters philosophical. And uh, then we also have... Uh, Metaphor, which is a conversation with the painter Andrew Wyeth. Uh, and this is, I think, especially interesting because uh, we see, we gain some insight into, uh, you know, Vidor's interest in uh, painting and also the kind of mutual influence uh, that uh, Vidor and Wyeth uh, kind of uh, had on one another. Um, and uh, then we're, we're also including in that program uh, the only film not by Vidor in the series, Journey to Galveston. Um, uh, and that's uh, a portrait uh, by uh, Catherine Berge, a French filmmaker, uh, made of Vidor late in his life. Uh, and uh, I think it's a, a really beautiful portrait of him as a filmmaker, as a, as a person, um, someone kind of like looking back on their life, uh, as you mentioned with with uh, um, H. M. Pullum Esquire, it has a, I don't know, it, it, it seems very Vidor, right? Like just the, the whole uh, model of the portrait um, seems uh, seems very fitting to him. And yeah, I think it's uh, it's 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 like a, a, a final note, like just when you think that Vidor has kind of covered all the territory in cinema, he still finds uh, you know another another mode to work in. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we hope you'll, we hope you'll come out to, to watch some of uh, these films uh, during this period between August 5th and uh, 14th. And, and we can uh, pretty much, although, uh, you know, I think Vidor's authorial uh, signature uh, is felt in all the films I can, 
you know, uh, par somewhat paradoxically, I can also guarantee that no two screenings that you go to in this retrospective will be uh, exactly alike. Uh, the man uh, worked in too many modes, too many genres, and from too many angles uh, for that to really be uh, the case. Um, but uh, there's but yeah, something for everyone in the King Viewer series. <laughs> There's something for everyone. No matter and, your taste. And uh, uh, don't take our word for it. Uh, you know, just come to the screenings. Uh, we have um, uh, one to note uh, that we have all access passes available for the retrospective. Um, uh, the, the, the regular uh, sort of all access pass, which gets you into every screening is uh, $119. And then uh, for students, it's uh, $59. So, um, students, what are you waiting for? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a bargain, kid. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, thanks, uh, Thomas. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dan. <laughs> uh, and thank all of you. And, and yeah, we hope to we hope to see you uh, hope to see you in the theater for uh, these screenings. All right, be well. Bye.